vengeance. I am the knight. I am. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board. Thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on tonight? Oh, God. Ugh, terrible time to throw to me. Not even ready in my cough button. Um, Well, picked up a cough. Abigail says it's our cough now, uh, so we're sharing it. Ass still broken, but I'm hanging in there. Not like I have uh, an 11-mile race to do or anything Sunday. You know, it's whatever. It's, It's fine. But my question for you tonight, as we dive back into some of the closest that, at least in canon, we'll get to post-apocalyptic literature on this show. What is your favorite piece of post-apocalyptic media? All right, I'm going to give you two. One is a book that I would be very curious if our good friend uh, Robert Secundus, Bobby Two Bucks, has read. I, I bet he Bobby has. Bobby Two Bucks. Called A Canticle for Leibowitz. It is a novel from, I want to say, the 70s? No, 1959. Damn. I read it in high school. It was it was given to me as a si- an assignment. It is set far enough after a nuclear apocalypse that humanity is starting to build up again. And it traces the cyclical nature of society that it starts out in a sort of dark ages where this order of priests or monks again it has been 25 years since i read this but i believe they're they're monks putting together documents of saint lebowitz and then we watch the order slowly as society builds itself back up and then destroys itself again. And while you could view that as inherently pessimistic, that we will continue to destroy ourselves, it also means we will continue to try to do better. So there is a hope to it as well. That's the, you know, highbrow, look at me reading all this classic science fiction answer. My my less frou-frou, highbrow answer is Stephen King's The Stand. Oh, can't go wrong with The Stand. No, it is... Baby, can you dig your man? He's a righteous man. It is an absolute classic. I, when I first wanted to read King, I tried to start with The Stand at... 12 or 13 was not the way to go. Oh no, but the the best way to encounter King is entirely too young, as as did I. I then read Eyes of the Dragon, which is much easier, and then went back to the stand, and then it was off like a shot from there. Those would probably be my two favorite pieces of post-apocalyptic media. Yeah, it's funny that you mention both that book and The Stand, both forms of nuclear 
apocalypse hashtag spoilers i would have said for a long time that my answer was the day after because it is so gritty so just dour just kind of like yeah you might survive the nuclear apocalypse but guess what everything is still fucked and then i watched threads you ever seen threads i have not seen threads oh oh it is it is a british film the basic idea is the same as the day after the sort of tracking of individuals normal people what happens in a nuclear exchange but the people who made threads would have and i forget the timeline of when it was made and whatnot but they would have looked at the day after and said those guys are a bunch of pussies because threads is so relentlessly dark because it carries the story out for a generation right not just what happens after the initial exchange but what happens decades down the line. And the point of that film is that society is over. At the time you have a worldwide nuclear apocalypse, society stops. Education stops. Life becomes nothing but just a struggle to survive for everyone. You know, society crumbles. And what happens two or three generations later? And it is Oh, dark, relentlessly dark. I love it. Go queue up threads on uh, on Amazon Prime, which I think is where I found it. It is unforgettable in terms of, wow, that is depressing as shit. So, so go watch that. And then when you're feeling real bad, take the time and read a canticle for Leibowitz and maybe have a little bit of hope. I think that that's the, the balance there. Yeah, I think that's fair. Or The Stand. I mean, The Stand is also inherent. I mean, mean, that might be saying something about me, that the two pieces of post-apocalyptic media that I love, both in the end have this message about people carrying on. And, you know, The Stand has this great cosmic, you know, uh, morality to it. In Threads, it's like, and, and this is the same with Day After, like, it doesn't really matter who fired first or why. Like everybody's just fucked in the end. Yeah. You know, that's, that's mutually assured destruction for you, baby. Uh, I also really like Failsafe, the original Henry Fonda version. And then like, not that anybody goes around remembering the George Clooney made for TV movie version, but that was such the story. And the, the ending there was such a bold choice. And, and I am not going to spoil it. I am not going to spoil Failsafe. You need to go out and watch that, get a full face of how that movie ends. And then Strange Love, right? Strange Love, great movie. Uh, I could spend the next 20 minutes talking about my favorite uh, Strange Love trivia facts. I'll drop one. I'll just drop the one. Peter Sellers was originally supposed to be Major Kong. We discussed that. When we did the whole Strange Love riff around that one issue of Batman and Robin Adventures. Ah, see, you you remember the shit that, you know, I obsess about. And I don't even remember talking about it on this show. Nothing that bleak tonight. Not quite. But certainly we're we're in some dark territory. I don't know if post-apocalyptic but dystopic story is most assuredly 
in a very bleak place. Because tonight we are returning to three runs that we have begun and are returning to in regularity. Grant Morrison's run on Batman, No Man's Land, and Injustice. Or, as I like to think of it, Matt tries to make Grant Morrison happen. Or, as I like to say, Will tries to make Grant Morrison not happen. But we'll start there. We're beginning tonight with Batman Dies at Dawn. This is Batman Volume 1, numbers 672 to 675. The writer is Grant Morrison, with pencils by Tony S. Daniel and Ryan Benjamin, inks by Daniel, Sandru Floria, Jonathan Glapian, Mark Irwin, and Salim Crawford, colors by Guy Major, letters by Randy Gentle and Sal Cipriano, and edited by Mike Martz and Janine Schaefer. Cover dates are February to May of 2008. The third Batman has appeared, and with him comes the secret of how these false Batman came to be. The secrets that have been teasing Batman since the beginning of Morrison's run begin to unfold as Batman plummets headlong toward certain doom. Let me say first that of all of the Morrison Batman that we have read, this has been my favorite because it makes the rest of the shit make sense. I Finally! Had, I had a feeling that this was going to work for you, especially because as kooky as it is in some places, a lot of it is really grounded into a sort of logical, okay, there's someone who's doing experiments there's a logic to it. It's not high cosmic weird. It's played fairly straight. Yes. And I, I think it's interesting that we have these stories kind of grouped together tonight because at one end, I'll say the Tom Taylor end, we've got a storyteller who goes straight from point A to point B to point C, point D. Like, say what you will about Mr. Taylor. His shit is readable. Like, it just, it goes down smooth, like popcorn and gin. A good gin. I don't even drink gin. But my problem with Morrison has been, Morrison to me is the equivalent of the symphony uh, or some kind of high art stuff. I see that it's good, right? I see what other people see in it, but I don't myself see anything in it. It's It's too confusing. It's too high concept but this is where i could finally dig into as you say like oh there's some just sort of logical plot points to hold on to and i can see what he's doing with the character and what everybody else in you know gotham is doing so and and you were you have been very good about this i'll I'll admit you have been very good about we need to read morrison in order now i want to go back and read everything so it makes even, you know, more sense now. Reading this again reads very logically and very much more smoothly than it did the first or even the second time. Because each time you read it, it's more like, ah, okay, I see this particular point. And there are points where Morrison doesn't explain things even later on not a lot but there are a couple of bits that i believe are 
weird for weird's sake or are left for the audience to make their own interpretation specifically in this case the weird thing attached to batmite that spider thing that is on batmite's back is never explained i have theories about what it is but morrison never sits down and goes let how let's have batmite tell you why that thing is on his back batmite is the the weird in this story but even then it's a bob overdog situation we don't know if batmite is really there or if that is batman's brain starved for oxygen conjuring batmite and we are going to very soon get Zuranar, right? That's the next arc. R.I.P. Yeah. is Zuranar. And a little more of Batmite that gives us Morrison's particular vision of what Batmite is. And I don't want to spoil that or discuss that because you need to, to take it in. R.I.P. is a trip, but is still somewhat grounded in okay this is what all of this has been leading to this is someone who has been building this long elaborate plan to fuck with batman and destroy him and here it is and and i like how this story teases to it like okay here it is we have been fucking building this for however long guess what the arc starts you know next issue like that's that's a pretty good hook the third batman is definitely the scariest of the three batman because the first one was just hey he he shot joker and then joker killed his ass done and then you have alpha male plus bane bat who is just big and tough but is not in himself that interesting but Uh, although we learned that he killed his family yeah But now we have this third Batman who is trained and is smart and who we met in 666 in that flash forward with Damien. So we've already seen him at that point, but now we're set back here in the present and rereading 666 especially pays dividends here because we see the hints of what could be Are these the shadows of things that will be or just may be sort of? Nah, just mustard. The third Batman is the one who is not so far gone that he can give us the information about what has been happening. This story also directly references two classic Golden Age stories. Which is the thing Morrison does. So much of what they do is built on this vast knowledge of Batman. Well, three stories, actually, because you also have a whole issue that takes aspects of the story, the origin of Batman, and twists it into a more modern retelling with nods to other influences of Batman. But we will read the stories that influence R.I.P. and the Morrison run between now and when we read R.I.P. 
in episode 100. Dropping ah, that, spoilers. Dropping that for everybody right now. Episode 100 is going to be RIP. But we have the stories in this, aside from the origin of Batman, are Commissioner Gordon walks a beat, which will be in an upcoming, not telling everybody when on this one, Jim Gordon-centric episode. And Robin dies at dawn, which will be one of the three stories the night of R.I.P. I rarely spoil this stuff in advance because I like y'all to come back and be surprised. But we're getting we're doing this, so I want y'all to know that episode 100 is going to be R.I.P. Robin dies at dawn and the Batman of Zorinov. Matt has been thinking about this a lot. Yes. And as opposed to these other episodes, we've tended to do the Morrison first. We're going to do the Golden Age stories and then go into the Morrison to end the night. Because with R.I.P., there is so much to discuss. (laughs) As there is here, Morrison, they know their Batman. They have all of this stuff down locked. And it's combining some of the stuff they did in 52 with Robin dies at dawn, which I have to imagine was intentional that when Morrison was working on 52 and talking about the Fogel ritual, which we see a lot of here, the connection to the isolation experiment from Robin dies at dawn had to have been front and center in their head. This is a much better version of what Tom King tried to do with nightmares. Yes, because Nightmares nightmares is in many ways more dreamlike because of just how random it is. But that's also why you never want to hear somebody talk about their dreams. Yeah. Because it's random nonsense and no one cares. Here, the one issue where Bruce is hallucinating and flashing back and forth in time is somewhat all over the place there's a structure to it say whatever you want about morrison there is always structure to what they do and it's not predictable no how did you feel about joe chill in hell the second issue of these four the one that does a sort of modern take on Bruce's confrontation with Chill. Assuming that it's all in, you know, his head, I think it's great. I think it's Bruce, there's some demented side of him that would want nothing more than to just torture Joe Chill for the rest of time. That's good fun there. But if you want to tell me that that was a, a literal retelling of Batman tracking Joe Chill down, I don't think I like some of the particular story beats, particularly his sadistic side and the idea that Joe Chill could rise up to be somebody important. You know, we've talked over and over and over again about, you know, Joe Chill's place in Batman lore. He should represent ordinary, average street crime. Like Joe Chill should not be anybody important. He should just be basically the the wrong guy in the wrong place who just happens to meet up with the Waynes and tragedy strikes. I agree, especially because we saw this takes place after Infinite Crisis. Morrison came onto Batman after Infinite Crisis when the timeline was 
slightly altered. And in that timeline, we know Chill was arrested. Chill didn't kill himself, as we see here. So I take this as Bruce's sort of wish fulfillment. Also, the laughter. The fact that he has this eerie, psychotic laugh throughout that entire scene absolutely, to me, feels like an homage to The Shadow. Ooh, yeah. Which is, of course, one of the two or three key inspirations to Batman. The other one being Zorro, which we will be getting to. Morrison benefits on a reread. Morrison benefits. The first, this probably could have been broken up into two stories as really 672 to 674 are an arc. And 675 bridges the gap in between the end of the first story and R.I.P. But I felt it better to put it at the end here than at the beginning of R.I.P. Always tricky to where to cover these prologue issues. Right. And here we also spend more time with Jezebel Jet. We talked about this last week with Batman's whirlwind romance with the pianist. And we talked about it with Chandra Kinsolving and the issues with that romance. Jezebel works better for me because it felt like we haven't seen her a ton, but we've gotten little bits and pieces of Bruce and Jezebel Jet since the second issue of Morrison's run, maybe the first, either 554 or 555, we're 20 months, 20 issues later, and it's been slowly built. And it's also not this all-encompassing thing for Bruce. So it's not uh, it's not Batcat, is what you're saying. No. Batcat at least has 80 years of real world and in comic world a decade of the two of them playing this game at least there's there's history versus here where it can suddenly be okay i've created this new love interest and now they're the greatest thing ever that that is one thing that tom king had going for him that's probably the nicest thing i can say about Batcat. And again, through this, Morrison takes even things from their own work that we get one of the men from the Ten-Eyed tribe showing up. That was something that Morrison introduced in 52. Is this the same Ten-Eyed man that we just saw in uh, Arkham or different? This is a different one. Okay. Pre-crisis, the Ten-Eyed man was ridiculous science fiction guy caught in an explosion and somehow his nerve ending his his optic nerves were rerouted into his fingers so he could see out of his fingers comics everybody yeah when morrison reintroduced the concept of the ten-eyed men in 52 it's this sort of warrior culture warrior tribe that train to be able to fight blind and have sort of an ESP thing that they channel through their hands. So this guy is one of them who's been exiled. We haven't gotten detail on that 10-eyed man from 
the water stuff, but my assumption is it's some sort of connection to the tribe of the Ten-Eyed Men. Uh, I do remember him being some kind of war veteran. That is the, the original Ten-Eyed Man. That's how the accident or the explosion was in that. In I believe it was Vietnam back then. But I think it's it's that's taking some of the original stuff and some of the Morrison stuff because of the obvious mystical connotations of the Waters Ten-Eyed Man and combining them into a hybrid of the two. Which that's the beauty of however many decades of continuity you can pick and choose and you can combine things to create a delightfully freaky character in Dan Waters' Ten-Eyed Man. Hey, it's how we finally got a clay face that fucking works. I love Morrison's take on Jim Gordon. Jim, this is a tough-as-nails Jim Gordon. Guy who takes no guff. A guy who stands by his friend, who stands up to the corrupt and it's interesting that you get to this point where you're assuming these cops are crooked they're not crooked in the way that gotham cops are usually crooked they are in a way victims yeah victims of simon hurt who we will see much more of as we enter the next arc this is the tease for simon hurt in a couple of places here. What did you think about Gordon's line? Like somebody asked him about Batman. He's like, oh, well, yeah, I I appreciate Batman the same way that I appreciate, you know, psychics. I think that's what he says. He says that to the mayor. Mm -hmm. He says that to the mayor to cover his own ass. Gordon is not a political animal by any stretch of the imagination. But he knows what lines to say at the right time to the right people. And I think to the mayor, it's like, yeah, he's like a civilian consultant. And we'll just go with that because that's plausible deniability, baby. The the psychic thing hit me in, in an interesting way because that's horseshit. And to think that Gordon would not like say that Batman is horseshit, but... I could easily see talking to the mayor like, oh, like, yeah, it's just it's just this guy. Like, he's not a big deal. I wish we had read Robin Dies at Dawn before this, but we'll read it with R.I.P. because it's the, the key story. It's the story of the isolation experiment because that is drawn directly from a Golden Age story. Although I love the, the wrinkle that Morrison adds that Batman knew it would push his sanity and he wanted to understand the Joker better. So he wanted to have that moment, a a safe place where he could briefly lose touch with reality. And Robbins, you think about the Joker too much. (laughs) And I had forgotten that Morrison has that specific line about how Bruce has been keeping Tim at arm's length because of that and because of Jason and that he's really calls that out because Morrison has been writing Bruce and Tim's relationship as more strained than it was prior to a lot of the changes that were made. It's like, okay. So it's, it's giving that a little more explanation. And I love, love scenes where you get Dick Grayson and Tim Drake together and written well, because we don't get that that much anymore. 
Tom Taylor did a really good job with it in a couple issues of Nightwing recently within the past couple of years. But back back in the day, they were brothers. And you you got a lot of really good Tim Drake and Dick Grayson just going out in adventures and this bond of camaraderie and brotherhood. And we don't see that as much. And we get only a little bit of it here, but it's nice to see in that, that final story. At the end of this, all the pieces are in place. We know about Dr. Hurt. We know about the three Batmen. Jezebel has figured out his identity. Talia is moving back towards Gotham with Damien. Bruce suspects the Black Glove is involved in all of this from uh, the Club of Heroes. Everything is set for RIP to just launch. Again, structure. Structure, not format. A key distinction that is lost on on some people. Mm -hmm. Morrison structures his books but they don't depend on a specific format. They alter and they morph based on the story that they're trying to tell versus some other writers who I feel like bend the story to fit the format. Formalism. Mm, this this has been a real shitting on Tom King episode. I like it. Comparing Morrison and King is a really depressing endeavor that's a word for it Uh, i was trying to come up with a word that wasn't interesting because it's a that's a word i use way too much everyone has that word those words that are their crutches for me it's interesting but these are two writers who are both viewed as doing these high concept and serious and intricate stories but king relies very much on these same set of tricks over and over again, while Morrison's stuff varies wildly from project to project. Very Which is why to- I think ultimately Morrison is going to be better regarded in the industry. I agree. And you'll see as we get deeper, even into this run, things change within the run that the Batman and Robin is a very different book than this Batman is, than Batman Inc. will be after it. They change the way they're telling the story as they change the story, if that makes sense. Oh, it certainly does. And just to kind of complete the loop on on Tom King, uh, you know, we gave up trying to read Batcat, and I guess we're going to eventually have to read it for this thing, because... One, the format was just so fucking confusing uh, and how it jumped from various time periods just on a page-by-page basis. And it just wasn't all that interesting. The man just feels like he's out of things to say. Um, And so I'm really not looking forward to trying to go through that in one slog. But now I've got you at least somewhat interested in reading R.I.P. And so I'm excited for that. Yes. Well, I'm I'm interested to read any story that we continually talk about. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for Officer Down. Like, I'm ready for that. But, you know, I, I just these and this why R.I.P. is in episode 100, as we talked about, like it felt like one of the last big stories that's still just kind of out there uh, that's not on the big board. 
Speaking of the big board. I believe it's time that Batman dies at dawn on the big board. We currently have 267 stories on the big board. Number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. At number 50 is Solo Number One, the Tim Sale Spotlight. Coming in at a sexy 69, it's the first Batman. Batman number one, Joker and the Joker Returns. Down at 100 is the third volume of Batman Eternal, The Villain War. As I have so smartly titled, The End. Down at 150 is The Misfits. Hey, some more Tim Sale. A little bit of uh, Catman, Chancer, Killer Moth. Kidnapping Bruce Wayne and Jim Gordon at 200 is the last Batgirl story, the Batgirl special number one. And all the way at the bottom, guess what? It's still White Knight. Still terrible. Although we've got the Dark Knight 16 to 21, Touch of Crazy, right there at 266. (laughs) Almost. Almost. Should have had late stage Van Skyver if you wanted to be all the way at the bottom. Okay, so where do we want to start here? Morrison stuff is tends to be a little lower than I would put it, a little higher than I feel like you would. It, the, the Morrison stuff is very much like a bill passing through Congress. Nobody winds up happy with the answer, which means you know it's a good compromise. Uh, well, in the spirit of bipartisanship, I am closer to wherever your inclination is here. You know, I'm just looking, obviously, uh, 73, hush. Another, well, yeah, we're obviously not to RIP yet, but, you know, hush lauded as, as a major Batman story. I think we both can agree it's not great. Kind of ass. Um, so my inclination is to always put stuff, especially credible, meaningful stuff, above Hush. Just like I'm always like, oh, let's put it above Killing Joke. So um, 73, good place to start. Okay. I'm just looking for some of our other Morrison that is is floating around on here. All right. So... That would probably make it our highest Morrison that is not either Arkham Asylum or Gothic or some of the JLA. The Batman stuff from this run, the next highest up is 77, right below Hush, with the first arc of Batman and Robin. So the one other thing that we've read that's a little further along in the run. So if you, I'm fine with Overhush. What about in relation to Prometheus, which was up to this point the your favorite Morrison thing that we've read? Mm, remind me of some of the beats from that. Prometheus is the the anti bat who gets up on the JLA watchtower and has plans within plans to take out the Justice League. Uses CD ROMs in his helmet. And then gets taken out by Catwoman delivering a stunning nut shot. Um, that's zany good fun, but I'd say this probably goes higher than that. 
Okay. I do not think it beats 47, A Savage Innocence, that Spectre story. Yeah, I was looking a little uh, higher than that. Uh, 41, Gold Magotham. That that's, tends to be another hard limit. So somewhere, I think, in the 50s, I think. Okay, here's Eternal Part 1. Another one with a lot of stuff going on within the GCPD. Better or worse there? That's got so much Gordon stuff that just never feels like it's totally drawn out and played out the way that it should be. But then Eternal would have gone for two years. Or we would have just gotten less hush. (laughs) Less hush is always the way to go. I'd say on balance, I'd probably put this below that. What about right below that? Because below that we have Solo, which is Tim Sale, which is, of course, stunning, but is very light on the Batman. Here, the art, the Tony Daniel art is good, but you also have that one issue from Ryan Benjamin, the the final issue, who I, I said it when we did the one issue of his from uh, Resurrection of Rachel Ghoul, an artist whose stuff never really does much for me. And this is early in Daniel's Batman. It's still really good, but his stuff gets better as his history with Batman continues. I will say this uh, this does come off as less uh, Ramita for, for Benjamin's credit. Mm. I think it's probably inked better. Then that last part of Resurrection of Rachel Ghoul. So on balance, the art is is obviously not as good as Solo because Tim Sale at the height of his power. There are few artists that I'm like, yeah, that that's as good as Tim Sale at the height of his power. Darwin Cook, Michael Lark. But the story here is obviously much more Batman, much more central. I want to say number 50. Works for me. All right. Batman Dies at Dawn, number 50. Next is Bread and Circuses. This is Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, number 117, and Batman Shadow of the Bat, number 85. The writer is Ian Edgington, with art and colors by Disraeli, with color assist by Digital Chameleon, letters by John Costanza, and edited by Jordan B. Gorfinkel, Denny O'Neill, and Joseph P. Illage. The cover date is May of 1999. Batman feels he needs to get the word that he is back out faster. And so he goes to the center of commerce and what little is left of society in the no man's land, the realm of the penguin. Meanwhile, Jim Gordon makes devil's bargain to help restore order. But how long can it last? I will start first by saying this is the most polished webcomic I've ever read. The art style is... Fucking hated it. Disraeli is very British. That is a style that comes from certain kinds of British comics. It is not a style that we see here in the States a ton. It did not match the tone of the story at all for me. Just took me out of just trying to just read it and enjoy it. Like... It's it's not bad art. It's just I would have someone else doing this book. Yeah, if you look at 
Israeli's history. It's it's a lot of 2000 AD. Most of of his American work is inks or like weird side stuff. Some Grendel, like the some of the weird off kilter Grendel stuff, actually. Like if this was Wayne Family Adventures, I'd be like, oh, this is cool. This is fun. I like it. But this. Yeah, this dystopian Gotham, it just, ugh, I don't like it. Don't care for it. Okay. We're also now at the point where No Man's Land, those first two months were those four-part are. We're now breaking down into smaller two parts or a month that's four one-offs before going back into more two-parters. We don't get another big arc until the middle where we have a three-parter. And then the very end. So we're we're getting more voices. No Man's Land as a concept is almost a Legends of the Dark Knight in that it feels like it's like, hey, let's just get creators we want to see do stuff and let's let them go wild in this setting as long as they fit in these certain story beats that we need them to hit. And so the next one is vastly different in art and tone. The next one is Greg Rucka's first story on a main bat book. Ooh. Okay. Mosaic. It's him, his writing's Black Mask and a much different art style, much grittier, much scratchier. Which but, is what I personally want. But art aside for now... I like this story. I like the idea here. Yeah, it's very straightforward. When most of society has fallen in Gotham, what power is left, right? And the remaining power is food, supplies, and believability, aura. And Batman comes in, and demolishes the aura of the penguin. And we get hints of the other important thing there, that Penguin knows he can jump ship when he wants. That in any war zone, there's always a black market. Someone is always running the black market, and you know Cobblepot is the kind of guy who's going to be running the black market. Of course, that's what he does. I was called him a scavenger. That's not the right word, but he's always got that angle and is a weasel. Yeah. If, if we had a story that was set entirely in Arkham using traditional like prison story tropes, Penguin would be the guy trading for shit. Like he would be the guy like, ah, I want some playing cards. Wah, wah, wah. You want naked ladies or not? Wah. You get to the end here, and of course, Bruce has played him because Penguin is never as smart as Penguin thinks he is. Was that your plan all along? Eh, something like it. Close enough. And that's the other thing that we see, that some of the Arkham set have gangs that are loyal to them. Often Joker thugs are loyal to joker because they are broken people that see something in his philosophy 
some of the others have something similar, the false face society who follow Black Mask. Penguin's guys are there for the money. Penguin inspires zero loyalty. And we see that play out. He's like, ah, help me from this crowd. Leonard? He left. They all did. And as always, I loved, again, that, but Penguin isn't stupid either. Because he, there's that moment when Batman first shows up and he's like, I'll fight your, I'll fight your guy. If I win, you feed these people. If you win, you're the one who killed the bat. He was like, please, I know you can take him. And so it gets turned into this, you know, series of escalating fights, which I'm glad were treated the way they were. That a lot of it was just a couple of panels because that could get real old real fast with the best of artists. Because that, that was what that would depend on. It would really depend on an artist coming up with incredible designs for all of these hit fighters that Bruce is fighting. And then drawing really interesting fight scenes. And you would need to have, if you wanted to give a lot of attention and detail that, it would need to have some sense of escalation. Like, okay... I put in the scrub. Well, Penguin put in his best guy first. Um, so the story here doesn't really lend itself to that kind of attention. Because uh, the the real action is, well, the action that Penguin is taking. Wah, 10%. Wah. Yeah. It's, oh, boy. That is the moment where it's like, is he stupid? Did he really think that, oh, don't worry, all your bets are off. You'll get your stuff back minus the house's 10%. Did he really think that was going to end well for him? But again, Penguin runs on ego. And, he's... and, and I really liked how we had like a, a trading places moment. We're like, oh shit, we can't cover this. If Batman wins, we're screwed. A smart Penguin would have, would have also bet on Batman. And the other thing that goes on here is we have a major... GCPD arc going on as the the blue boys have sort of reached saturation with their forces that they got lucky with the way things worked out in no law and new order where they pit the low boys against the street demons and now It's like, oh, we only have X number of guys and trying to do this again is leading us to a point where we we, we can't keep pulling this off. So what are we going to do? Jimbo makes a deal. Yep. And it's not hard to figure out who it is, even without the one panel that completely gives it away. We don't see who it is, but it's patently obvious mm, i feel like i'm gonna out myself for being stupid here is it joker no oh fuck me i'm stupid uh all right who is it let me find there's a particular page and panel reference that i will give you from the second if you go into the second part mm-hmm. and you look there's a scene where gordon is in the bathroom And he's looking in a mirror. Two-Face. Yep. There we go. There we go. 
the the shattered mirror with the cut down the middle this is the stuff that sets up all the montoya things that we're going to be seeing because i believe it's the next arc montoya becomes the runner in between gordon and dent ah which would explain all the fucked up shit that happens between dent and montoya and there's a li- i mean there's a little bit before that there's a with aftershocks the stuff that followed up cataclysm where we see the first time montoya meets two-face in a short written by greg rucka but then that relationship is deepened throughout no man's land with her being the intermediary between gordon and dent so as i have said the the art style did not work for me here and it just generally to me gave it more of a comedic style like i look at this and i see kyle starks like the 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 artistic style is very similar um but one thing i did like so penguin gets his nose broken and you know he's speaking uh, how one speaks with a broken nose but his internal narration stays the same and i thought that was like clever we also really start seeing here on top of Gordon's deal with Dent, we're starting to see more than ever the schism forming within the Blue Boys. We don't see Bill Pettit in this arc, but we do see Foley, who's the weasel. He's the guy who really tried like hell to get out and got stuck behind. Uh, what what did they call it? Uh, Black Monday? Black Monday, when they blew all the bridges. Mm. and by the way Foley appeared in a film that is Matthew Modine's character from Dark Knight Rises he's Foley huh I try not to think about Rises but you know that's always a good thing I love those because I mean let's be fair Rises is part no man's land it's one of the, the many things that were thrown into the stew to get Rises mm, and I hope Batman 2 is a better version of that. But yeah, what we get here is Two-Face being willing to work with Jim. Because he, you know, he talks about order. Jim wants to believe he he's torn here because I think Jim always wants to believe that Harvey is redeemable. So does Bruce. It's why Jim would never work with the Joker. Even if the Joker came to him with the best deal in the world, he would never work with the Joker. He'd probably not work with the Penguin or Black Mass or any of those freaks. But there's always that little bit of him that thinks, my friend is underneath there. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes every Two-Face Gordon, Two-Face Batman story tragic. Because they want to believe this more than the readers, more than... Two-Face does. And we're going to see that as this story continues because Dent Dent is here till nearly the end. Dent goes out right before the end. I think since this was over a year, I believe the final Two-Face story, the, the culmination of that is end of September or October. We're at the beginning of March. This was the first two weeks of March these came out. So he's there for another six months, most of 
the no man's land. The only guys left after Dent are Joker and the mysterious force that is trying to rebuild Gotham and get it put back on the map for its own nefarious means. Foreshadowing. Yes. I like the way Edgington wrote Gordon. There's a whole scene between Gordon and Sarah after they come back from this failed raid where Gordon has walked in on Foley being the doomsayer and Jim, you know, saying, you know, I know what we're doing is right in my heart of hearts, but there are times where I feel like he's right. Bruce has an almost insane drive and an insane belief that what he's doing is right and will work. Gordon is more mortal. Gordon will have more doubts, but because he's a good man, he will make the right choice in the end and do what is right for everyone. Page before that scene shot of the squad room. I do like the detail here that we've got uh, basically noticed that ammo is limited and that there's a sign-up sheet for archery practice. I also never forgotten the panel where they're charging or being attacked by this random gang that doesn't particularly matter. And Bullock gets an arrow through him. And Matar's like, Harvey. And because it's been four months, Bullock's lost all this weight. So it went right through his big coat that he still wears. Donuts are hard to come by. But all in all, I I think we're about done with this. I can absolutely see where you're coming from. The art is a strange mismatch for this. We're going to see a lot of different art styles and different writing over the course of the remainder of No Man's Land. But it does tend more towards the dark than the cartoony. But there are a couple that are also kind of cartoony. I like cartoony just fine. But the cartoony stuff belongs with the Kyle Stark stuff. Action comedy. Sex cast. Kill them all. Uh, Rock Candy Mountain. Oh, fuck me. Uh, that The thing about Starks, if you haven't read Starks, he is a hilarious guy, but he will come along and he will stab you right in your fucking heart. And my goodness, if Rock Candy Mountain didn't do that. Rock Candy Mountain is probably still my favorite. I love all of the stuff he's done, but Rock Candy Mountain, there's a a bonus podcast for us to do someday of Hobo Comics. You do Rock Candy Mountain, Valiance, the Delinquents, where Archer and Armstrong and Quantum and Woody encounter a secret society of hobos. There's a few others. Uh, his Mars Attacks, uh, Attacks book, also very good. Oh, I'll have to track that down. I haven't read that one. Yeah, through uh, through Dynamite, and again, you think he's just doing, you know, just a little license gig? No. Comes for your fucking heart. Have you been reading uh, Fuck This Place? I have not. Uh, I did the first issue uh, with Ian for Leftovers, and I don't know if we did any more. We're, I think, one or two issues from the end. It started out slow, but it's it's gotten there. Actually, as I think about it, 
it's either Rock Candy Mountain or Six Sidekicks of Trigger Keaton that are my favorite. That that one is also just so friggin' good. Uh, you do love your murder mysteries. I do. And thinking about, there's also uh, Where Monsters Lie, which just wrapped up. And if you're out there and you're a Batman fan, Where Monsters Lie has an Arkham Asylum-y kind of vibe to it. Not the the graphic novel the place that is is really worth your time it's delightfully insane we we just covered uh the second issue of that it's good good fun times it is and it's got a great twist ending oh okay so we'll keep reading then yeah it's the best kind of twist where it's like that all makes complete sense it's it's not a and plants are killing humanity twist. <laughs> it it's an I see dead people. It's a oh when I go back and follow this again, it all makes sense. Uh, it turns out they were in modern day times all along, and I we're we're gonna put this on the board here, but I just want to say how angry I am about glass. I'm so fucking angry. It's gonna. I thought, oh hey, gonna get a sequel to Unbreakable. All right, that's the only fucking movie I've wanted for him for like fifteen years. Big steaming pile of shit. <sighs> Not a good ending. No, and it was made for like three dollars, right? And they spend most of the movie in that goddamn asylum, not doing anything. Urgh. All right. But With those seven tangents out of the way, it's time to put bread and circuses on the big board. Fear of Faith, the second arc, is down at 118. I don't think this is as good as Fear of Faith. But this is not bad. No, it's going to be a little lower than that, but I don't think it's going to be much lower. Uh, I probably would not put it above annual number three, uh, Superman at 124, Armageddon 2001, that dry run for injustice. Yeah, I would probably put it above 133, the first appearances of Jason Todd and Killer Croc. Not bad, but a little too long. I would put this above either of those, either Gates of Gotham or Enter the Croc. Because again, two issues, really tight. It does a good job, it feels to me, of them going to a writer and being like, so what type of story do you want to tell in this setting? Well, I have this idea for, you know, a fight club being run by somebody. And it's like, okay, well, the Penguin's like, great. But we also kind of need you to do this stuff with Jim Gordon because that's part of the overall plot. But it doesn't feel like... And now I have to write this scene with Gordon and the cops. Because when that's a big thing you'll see in line-wide crossovers. When a book gets pulled into a line-wide crossover when the writer really doesn't want to because they're telling another story, you can always feel the ploddingness of, now I got to tell this stupid thing involving whatever the hell they're telling me to while I have to take an issue off of what I really want to tell. 
there are some of these stories in no man's land later the, a lot of the one-offs that don't forward this overplot which is fine but this does a good job of balancing what i feel like is what the writer wanted to tell and the overplot that they were given to write yes this doesn't doesn't seem forced at all and uh, two issues can't say enough about that being able to tell a story in just two issues okay well then here's a question you said not above execution 2001 below that is larceny my sweet from batman adventures the clayface summer gleason story uh, that that had some feels to it that did then below that is crisis of infinite scoobies it's that's so good ton of fun I'd, I'd probably put this right under Infinite Scoobies, do 127. I am good with that. I was going to say 127 or 128, and there we go. Also, quick note, two non-Batman slash detective titles getting well into their later stages. So novel. I miss that. I miss that feeling of long runs like we just got uh we got the new brave and the bold which is just a churched up urban legends the fact that we're on 100 and something on nightwing feels nice right now don't make them like they used to nope okay our final story of the night is injustice gods among us year two volume one this is Injustice, Gods Among Us, Year 2, Numbers 1 to 6. The writer is Tom Taylor, with pencils by Bruno Redondo and Mike S. Miller. Inks by Julian Hugenard, Bart, and Miller. Colors by David Lopez and Rex Locus. Lettered by Wes Abbott and edited by Anis Ansari and Jim Chadwick. The cover dates are March to August of 2014. As Superman closes his fist around the world... The guardians of the universe take notice, as does their nemesis, Sinestro. Superman slides more and more into darkness as he chooses the first city to be patrolled by his new super police force, Gotham. First things first. Did you notice how long it took me to read those credits? We were not here for an hour as yeah. I read a litany of 30 artists. Still not what you want, uh, but it's getting better. It is a considerable step up from the first year. I think that's because they now realize what they have on their hands. They had planned this out, I'm sure, as a year-long series. And now it's like, oh, we're going to do a second year. We need to actually put some effort behind it. Yeah, and... It's kind of interesting that I think this series and what it has spawned is probably more important at this point than the video games. Warner Brothers slash Discovery slash whatever doesn't seem to be all that busy or all that concerned about making another uh, injustice, but we are still telling stories in this universe. We're going to have to cover the animated film at some point for a bonus episode. 
it was fascinating that it starts out pretty much a straight adaptation of volume one up to a certain point. And then they're like, okay, we actually have to tell a complete story here. So they have to give it an ending. And it's like, oh, I don't know how the video game ends, but I doubt it's that. And that's kind of a really neat ending. Uh, well, the video game has two endings. And I think Injustice 2 presumes like the darker of the possible endings of the video game. What a shock. I know, right? This volume has got the Gordon moment that I have hyped up so much. I'm not a fucking moron. Of course, I know that not only that my daughter is Oracle slash Batgirl, but I know that Bruce Wayne is Batman because, as Jim Gordon screams, I am a detective. I fucking love that. Yes, and that is how I have always felt. Gordon knows. And, I mean, mainstream comics Gordon has known that she's Batgirl. That's been canon. He's kept it to himself. But he knows. Since the first time you snuck out with Dick Grayson in that costume. Yeah. The gym stuff here is real good. And I can't wait to get to the second half of this year to see where it goes from that, the end of this part. Because the final page here is a great cliffhanger. Oh, isn't it though? So the, the major plot development that we have in this volume is that to combat Superman, and this is not to say that the drama and intrigue with the Lantern Corps isn't interesting, but as far as the, the heroes on Earth, their big advancement is Super Pills, uh, which will, and this this is a teaser that I've already talked about it, but I'll talk about it again. This will eventually give Rene Montoya the ability to smack the shit out of Superman with the Washington Monument. Just the greatest moment in comics. Uh, the only kind of thing you'll ever that you can see in comics. I am looking forward to that. Although I, I contend I don't think it can live up to Alfred having taken one of those super pills and just smacking down Clark while telling him how disappointed he is in him. Get the fuck out of this house, you piece of shit. There are writers who would find a way. To give this some balance, to try to let you absolutely be like, okay, I can see where Superman is coming from. I like a lot of what Tom Taylor is and does. Subtlety is not his strong suit, and there is no both sidesiness in this. No, not at all, because you see Superman stepping on every single rake. And to me, you know, we talked in the last volume about the problems with Diana. And I think one of the reasons why this volume is so much better is that she's sidelined. She, you know, she's been injured. She is off the board. So we don't have to just be confronted with this problematic characterization of her as just this fawning sycophant of someone who is obviously a tyrant. But Superman has gone down this road. He's committed murder. He's murdered several heroes at this point. Uh, you know, he says, oh, it's an accident. But, you know, well, whatever. Maybe it was an accident when he killed Oliver. It was not an accident when he killed John. No. Black Canary is certainly not taking it as an accident. 
she is not having any of his shit or any attempt to apologize. There's very little Batman in here. He's He's laid laid up. Yep. He is in the Tower of Fate with Alfred tending to him because Superman pulled a Bane in that last issue and did a much better job of it than Bane did. But, But there's a fair amount of Gotham. And I really enjoy the the bits with Gordon and Bullock and Montoya. And Bullock standing up to the stupor Gestapo is a great moment. And, and just going back to that Gordon moment that works so well in here, it underscores the seriousness, right? There are jackboots in Gotham and Gordon basically tells, tells Barbara, we do not have the luxury of this fiction that we have created around ourselves. This is a time for absolute truth. All right. He's asking like where Batman is. And we have this, just this great line, you know, Barbara says, I could tell you, but it's not going to help you. And Gordon's like, you're going to fucking tell me. Okay. He's, he's in another dimension. Yeah. You're fucking right. That didn't help me at all. We've seen that before somewhere that Jim Gordon confronted with the glorious comic book nonsense. And be just like, I can't deal with this shit. I am too old for this. We also get the revelation that Gordon is dying. I like how it's delivered that Superman starts with, you have a daughter, don't you? You threatening me? No, just letting you know that you have lung cancer that is spread. You should probably have that looked at. That Superman, that... known for his compassion, is so callous. It just underlines how he is losing touch with his humanity. Everyone notices it more when he starts to hang out with Sinestro. Barry Allen, the Flash, who is his sort of closest thing to a right hand now that Diana is out, and Luthor are both like, this is a really bad idea. But Sinestro is like, oh, but you're going to need me. Evil Clark, you know, whether it's it's Red Sun or Injustice, Evil Clark is never really clever. Same thing with uh, Dark Knight Returns. Like, you know, just if Superman is going to be bad, he is going to be a pawn of either his own darkest desires of or somebody else's dark plans. And yeah, he he looks like a real dumb dumb for falling for Sinestro, who is literally a mustache twirling villain. There's a really great sequence where Sinestro recounts his origin. And you read how Sinestro describes everything while the art is showing you what's actually happening. And initially, like, okay, is this an unreliable narrator thing where he's a little off? And then you get to a point as you go through, oh, no, he is flat out. There's no way he is believing some of the shit he is shoveling here. But it's all just close enough. It's a beautifully done sequence where you do get to the point where it's like, Maybe he actually believes this because he is so lying to himself. It's not even an unreliable narrator where he's seeing things differently. He has to be actively lying to himself or lying to Superman or possibly both. 
It's uh, it's the old Cartman. You uh, you tell a lie long enough, you start to believe it. But I really liked how that bit played out. Not as in love with him just killing Kyle Rayner quickly because I like Kyle Rayner. Oh, not just killing him. He's literally ripped to pieces. Yeah. Drawn and space quartered. The way Dinah, Black Canary, twists the knife in Superman in the first scene where, you know, she she does the sonic scream and then he's getting ready to lose it on her. Like he did an Ollie and everyone else. And she's like, look real close. You're pregnant. I'm fighting for two. And woof, he's gone. Yeah. After everything else that happened to him, after what set him down this path, that's a, a knife that she just twisted just right. But, you know, as as Superman is is losing touch with the things that made him a hero, we are getting less and less sympathetic for him. Oh, yeah. And it's the final battle of this volume between the Green Lantern Corps, the heroes, and the Sinestro Corps shows you just how compromised he has become because he does this whole, you know, after the lanterns have surrendered to him because he can't let them leave Earth and tell the Guardians, he he exiles the Sinestro Corps. Sinestro, you can't have them on Earth, but you, you can stay because I need your counsel. After Sinestro killed one of the lanterns in cold blood in front the of him. Cu- the cute one. Yep. Chip squirrel. The, the squirrel lantern who was, it was pretty awesome that he was using his ring to freeze the synapses in Clark's brain so he couldn't, you know, think. That's a great use of the power ring. But he let Sinestro, who committed cold-blooded murder in front of him, stay on Earth. Clark, at this point, always has a devil on his shoulder. Whether it's Diana or Sinestro, or I'm sure there will be more as this series progresses. But he has given up his agency to be the pawn of forces outside of him, and he doesn't even realize it. No, and in large part, it's cowardice. It's not wanting to face consequences, right? After murdering Joker, he could have said, all right, I'm going to surrender myself to law enforcement. I have I have killed a man. I need to face the consequences. I have tarnished the shield. I I need to face justice. But he delays that. You know, the guardians come to Earth and say, you are imposing your will on this planet. You need to stop. He says, no. Guardians say, okay, we're going to we're going to bring you in. He says, oh, no, you're not. And so it's just a not wanting to admit that he's wrong, not willing to face consequences and just keeps making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. In the immortal words of Chief Clancy Wiggum, dig up, stupid. <laughs> Luthor, there's a great, when Luthor lets Sinestro out of the prison they have him in, because initially Clark's like, you know, we have to lock him up. He's We can't trust him. Or he listens to Lex and Flash enough at that point. Luthor's like, I won't let you corrupt him. I won't have to. 
No, he's Sinestro's he, response. He's already dead. Yes, exactly. Clark is at this point beyond redemption. And that's again, there is there are more subtle writers who would find a way to keep Clark somewhat redeemable, but that's not what Taylor is trying to do here. I don't necessarily have a problem with that because I'm okay with there being some black and white. Uh, And you have some characters more or less gray. Hal is portrayed as, you know, being torn. He's going to make some choices that eventually put him definitively on one side. And then he has to reckon with those choices. Uh, But then over here, Batman is, is experimenting with, you know, power pills. He's very much literally in an arms race. So there are some moral quandaries, but when it comes to soups, no. And uh, I'm sure for the soups fans out there, this is a very hard book. And briefly to just circle back to the art, we have just two artists here. And Bruno Redondo is a great artist. The stuff he has done with Taylor on Nightwing has been especially gorgeous and is really good here. Mike S. Miller is not as good as Redondo, but again, compared to some of the truly painful and amateurish stuff that we had in volume one, just having those two artists makes this a much, much easier read than that previous volume. There is one stretch early on that the coloring is all bad. Uh, It looks faded it looks like somebody left the book out in the sun too long some of the faces are a little weirdly proportioned but this is a clear 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 step up in terms of where we were in the first book sadly it looks like the second half has a lot more pencilers in it oh no Still, just the flip through of it as I bought the trade on this. It's not nowhere near as bad as volume one. And I think a lot of that, like a bunch of them are just in the annual, which is a bunch of shorts. So I think it's less obnoxious than volume one. We, we will be able to rank this without going, oh, yeah, this is down that low because, oh, right, that art. Nowhere in here does Damien look like he's 30. But no Damien in this volume. Uh, he, I think he's maybe on like one page. This is the volume of what? It's this volume is the lanterns. Then it's magic in volume three, I think. That's where Constantine shows up. Uh, there's some Greek gods in there somewhere. Yeah. Because there's five years of this. Plus a year zero, and then a Injustice 2 tie-in, I believe. Yes. So there's a lot more to go before we're done with Injustice. Again, for something that I think was created to be a quick cash grab, one-year tie-in to this video game spawned so much more. And that means it's time to put Injustice Year 2 Volume 1 on the big board. Volume 1 Part 1 is at 160. And Volume 1 Part 2 is at 167, not too far below that. 
this is better. I like the intrigue with the lanterns. I like the consistent arc. Art. Nothing in terms of shock value ever quite gets to Superman punching through Joker's chest. But you got a lot of nice story beats in here. And I, I just really like the stuff with Jim Gordon. We didn't even talk about the moment where he tells Barbara he has cancer and they embrace. Probably the second best emotional moment in all of Injustice behind Selena talking to Alfred after Dick Grayson has died and saying, you know, you're used to other people taking care, taking care of other people. Let me take care of you. How far up do we want to go here? Because it, it's still an Elseworld. It's still not canon. I think all of the big Supes fans out there would come at us with pitchforks and torches if we tried to put this really high. If we weren't going to be re-ranking it, I would say it does not go above Batman Judge Dredd. But that's going to move up some as it is. Well, it's not above Bread and Circuses that we did a little bit ago. It's not above 127, I think. I'd say it beats Batman Grendel at 140. Somewhere in the 130s? Yeah. 137, Batman Year 100. Four issues, consistent story, consistent art. I think it could go right below that. As much as I like Ghosts, the final of those long uh, Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween specials, the Christmas Carol riff on that one isn't as strong as the other two. And it was the shortest of the three, and I think suffered for that, because that was a story that could have used some expanding. So the new 138? The new 138. All right, that does it for this week. Next week, it's tie-in time. We're reading three stories that tie into Batman media outside of comics. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, June, come on, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, (laughs) Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Two Bucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sraggioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and Comics XF, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham 
is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>